Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, it's Sterling Fox, and today on The Roy Green Show podcast, we talk to Jerry Nichols, political consultant and commentator. Also on the program, we'll talk to Diane Francis, the editor-at-large of the National Post about, well, a lot of things, including her choice for successor to Andrew Scheer. And then, at the end of things, we'll take a look at the top sports stories of 2019. Enjoy. Jerry Nichols is joining us from Oakville, Ontario. Mr. Nichols is a political consultant and commentator, a regular on those power and politics type TV shows, and a good friend of this program. Jerry, good to have you back. Merry Christmas, my friend. So what about this $700,000 accounting error? Hardly, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't know, you know what the nuts and bolts of this are, uh, Sterling, but I think the politics of it, is the only thing that's bad about this for the conservatives, because then the average person doesn't really care what happens with, you know, with internal conservative party accounting. I mean, this is not tax dollar. We're talking about you know, money from the conservative party. It's a private organization. Right. So it's only within sort of in-house kind of thing. But it's still money that people have given, donated voluntarily to the party, anticipating it would be spent on things like campaign signs and that right. kind of thing. Right, and I think that's the, the problem for the conservatives here in terms of politics is that the, the, the competitive advantage, if you will, which the Conservative Party always had vis-a-vis the Liberals, was they could always say, we're better fiscal managers. You know, you can trust us to run the economy. You know, the Liberals are going to spend, spend, spend. Right. Uh, waste, waste, waste. We you know we Conservatives, you know, we're going to do things better. This kind of kind of shatters that a little bit because it looks like, hey, you guys can't even run your own house. You know, mm-hmm. Why should we trust you, to, you know, to trust the to run the government? So I think... In, in terms of PR, this is kind of a black mark for the Conservative Party. It's kind of embarrassing. I think, of course, this is what led, I think, to the the rapid demise of Andrew Scheer as leader of the Conservative Party. He probably knew there was more coming, um, besides just the, the stuff about you know, educating his kids. So he decided, you know what, I'm going to go. Um, and so, yeah, he's left kind of a he's kind of left kind of a little framing wreck for the Conservatives to deal with. You know, here's and you and I have talked about Mr. Shear since uh, before he uh, was elected. In fact, we, we had a good conversation about him during his uh, run up to uh, the winning the nomination from uh, Maxime Bernier and other competitors. Shear lost me after he won the leadership, Jerry, and did that little dance with a liter of milk. The reason being that he had, and you go back and you know this better than most people listening, Andrew Scheer won the conservative nomination or leadership race by importing, and it's done in politics all the time, certainly hardly a precedent, by importing all sorts of, quote, new members, many of whom were funded and uh, placed boots on the ground by the dairy cartel in Ontario and Quebec. And so as soon as he gets elected, the first thing he does is have a a little performance with a liter of milk showing the world, at least the nation, he has no intention of doing anything to affect the niche that the, of the market that the dairy cartel has that owns. There, he's their boy. He got him his. They got him his job. Have a have a swig of milk uh, on them, and that turned me off at that moment, and I he lost me on the spot. Yeah, this is when he had did his infamous uh, drink of milk. Yeah, exactly uh, on national was, TV. Right, and it was kind of. It was kind of. St- I think he was trying to stick it to Maxime Bernier, because mm-hmm. uh, Maxime Bernier, of course, said, you know, one of his big things was he was going to, you know, get rid of the, uh, of the of the dairy board, blah blah blah. He was going to be right. a free market guy, 
and Shear was, no, 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 we're going to keep it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that was, a, uh, that was, you know, when you win, you have to look like a good winner. And he didn't look like a good winner. He was like, he was kind of rubbing it in the face of all his opponents saying, look, I won because, and he's basically flaunting the fact that, as you said, it was like this sort of special interest group which helped to put him over the top, which yeah. lined up all these members. And you know what? That, even if that was the case, if you're sure, you don't really want to bring attention to that, right? You want to make it look like, you know, I won because, you know, that was, had a great vision and conservatives rallied around me. You don't want to say it's because I took a cynical route. To get to power, so I think, I think yeah, I think that was a, a strategic mistake, a communications mistake, on the part of Sheer. Uh, yeah, not a good way to start off as leadership. Yeah, you're the veteran political observer in this conversation, Mr. Nichols. Did his resignation and the way in which it happened surprise you even a little bit? Yeah, it surprised me a lot. I mean, I thought I thought that he was going to hang on, because uh, a lot of the people who were you know sort of saying he should resign, you know, he should quit. A lot of these people were, were what I would consider hired guns, you know, consultants and you know, behind-the-scenes sure. people who, you know, who knows who's bankrolling these people to, to run these kinds of things. So I thought, you know what, there's, this is some kind of, you know, somebody's trying to get them out. There's some kind of power base out there that wants a new leader, blah, 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 blah. But what about the grassroots conservatives? And I thought that because Shear was still leader, he still had a sort of a pulpit from which he could sort of speak out and, and win back the conservative grassroots. And there's a lot of ways he could do that. So I thought at least he had a fighting chance to hang on until the convention in April. So when he sort of quit, it, it sort of caught me off guard. Um, but now when you hear about all these expense things and all this kind of stuff, it makes a little more sense. So what about the people that's uh, the parade that is now beginning to form ever so quietly of those who would succeed, Mr. Shear? Uh, I mean, it's, it's Christmas time, so they have the luxury, really, of a break from everything being handed to everyone, which allows for a little more behind-the-scenes organizational time. Uh, we're going to talk to Diane Francis, the editor of the Financial Post, in a couple of hours here, Jerry, and she wrote a column this week earlier on uh, declaring John Baird to be her choice, uh, a name that's really out of left field for me. It'll be an interesting conversation to see why she chose John. But uh, what about you? Do you see uh, in that parade that is beginning to form any likely successor? I don't see anybody who is the clear sort of heir apparent to Andrew Shear. There's no guy or woman out there who's like, this is the person who's, who, who, who should win it. Like, this is the front runner. This is the guy you got to be. I don't see anybody like that right now. Mm. I think there's a lot of sort of, I think we're going to see more sort of heavyweights in this leadership race than in the last one. I think the last one, I think a lot of thinking was, well, we're going to lose in 2019. So we'll just have a placeholder leader. And I think that was Andrew Shearer. He was more of a compromise choice in, in, when he was made a, as leader, which probably explains another reason why he, you know, his, his demise was so quick. He did not have that really strong support in the party to begin with. So now I think we're going to see more stars you know, cluster around uh, uh, into the leadership race. People like Peter McKay, maybe people mm-hmm. like Rona Ambrose uh, spring to mind. Um, Aaron O'Toole, I think Pierre Polyev has said he wants to run. Uh, so I think, I think we're going to have some bigger names. Baird would be an interesting choice. I think, you know, he's a tough guy. He's a, he's a fighter. Um, you know, probably a real staunch social, uh, sort of staunch fiscal conservative. Definitely. Kind of a guy. So I think he'd be an interesting choice. But for guys like Baird, like, you know, he's doing pretty well right now in the private sector. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Why, would, why would he want to give all that up to sort of enter into this shark pool of Canadian politics and all that goes with it? So I think, I think that might be a problem, you know, trying to convince some of these guys to, you know, give up, you know, pretty lucrative careers 
to come back into politics. I think so. Yeah. And Ronna Ambrose is in that category as well in yeah. terms of enjoying I, I successful post-political category. life. Hmm? Yeah. Jerry, I need to take a quick break because I need you to stick around and I want to talk about Trudeau. Jerry Nichols is joining us from Oakville, Ontario. Mr. Nichols is a political commentator and consultant and has advised leaders of governments on both sides of the border. Jerry, somebody advised the Prime Minister of Canada to cool his jets and disappear. Uh, He took the advice. Who do you think gave him the advice and why do you think he took it? Well, you know, I, I don't know. It could be, could be his mother. <laughs> I, don't, uh, I don't know. I, um, That's possible, I, too, I suppose. It could be. Um, I suspect what's happening in the liberal sort of brain trust is that, you know, they're looking at what happened in the last election. Remember, he won the election, but he kind of he hobbled over the finish line. Uh, not, I think, what the liberals were expecting. I think if you and I, Sterling, were having this conversation a year ago at this time, I would have confidently predicted that Justin Trudeau would win another majority government. Sure. So I think that they kind of did not meet their expectations for what they wanted this year. So they could be kind of rethinking their overall strategy. And, and, and then part of that process is kind of you know, pull back the prime minister and so we can rework things, rework his image. Because I think it's, you know, there's no question that his image did take a beating over 2019. Mm-hmm. The SNC scandal, and of course with the blackface affair, and all that kind of stuff. So he, he, he the rose is off the bloom. And remember, for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the big thing about him was always his personality. Right. I call him a personality candidate, and that is people vote for him not because of his ideology, because of his party label, because they like him. He's an affable guy, mm-hmm. and you know that's a very powerful force in politics. If you get people to like you, they'll probably vote for you. It's a Ronald Reagan kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, all of a sudden maybe he's not so likable anymore with a lot of Canadians. And I think that's not just sort of the scandals that happened over last year, but it's just a, just a function of time. You know, what's the expression? Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Breeds contempt, absolutely. Plus there's this entitlement aura about Mr. Trudeau that a lot of people find a little annoying. Well, that's kind of his weak point as sort of a leader because he has, you know, he has this sort of rock star persona about him, but he didn't really do anything to earn it. Right. And you could always say, oh, well, he just, you know, he just happened to have the right father. He had a privileged upbringing. That's kind of his weak point, which is why I'm surprised that the NDP and the conservatives never really went after that, like I think they should have, because I think that was a place that, that was an issue about Trudeau they could have exploited, but they didn't. Uh, regardless, however, I think, you know, Trudeau is, you know, he might be sort of becoming, you know, we're tired of this guy. And maybe the liberals are picking up in their polling, which is why they're kind of pulling him back a little bit and trying to keep him from being too overexposed. Jerry, a minority parliament in any parliamentary democracy, a minority government typically has a lifespan of somewhere between 18 and 24 months, as opposed to the 48 that we're supposed to get automatically. What do you see as a potential lifespan for the current Trudeau minority government? Well, I would, I would, if I was a betting man, I'd bet that it would last longer rather than shorter. Okay. I think, you know, he's got, Trudeau and the Liberals have got a couple things working in their favor right now. First of all, the Conservatives sure don't want a, an election anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have to pick a new leader, and that's, you know, what's that going to take, eight or nine months before they can do that? And then after that, you know, they're going to have to sort of, you know, regroup and get ready for a federal election. So they're not going to be in any mood to have a quick one. Uh, and the NDP is pretty weak shape right now in terms of, uh, fundraising and in terms of where they are in the party right now. So I don't think they are in any rush to go to the polls. And I think the bloc's pretty happy the way things are. 
Um, so, I, yeah, all those things considered, you look at it and you say, yeah, you know, he's probably pretty stable. He's got a pretty stable minority government, unless he does something completely egregious mm. to, to anger somebody, which I don't think he will. So you last, mentioned, I, I think he lasts more of the, the two point two year mark, if you ask me. Okay, you mentioned the NDP uh, very briefly there. Uh, they were celebrating on election night because uh, I don't know why. Still, uh, because they they didn't do very well, and yet they continue to present this uh, this sort of victorious uh, uh, profile. Yeah, they did horribly on election <laughs> I guess. night, um, but not as horrible as I as I think a lot of them feared. And I think it's, it's, you know, this is also that Scheer got caught up in the same thing. It's the game of expectations. Scheer, a lot of conservatives uh, thought, expected him to do better because of all the problems that Trudeau was facing, but he didn't. He didn't win. Whereas Singh, when he went into, Andrew, uh, Jagmeet Singh, when he went into the election, a lot of people think this is going to be a disaster. We're going to get wiped out. Mm-hmm. Terrible leader. And, you know, they didn't, they, even though they finished in fourth place, they, they, they still you know, crossed the finish line with at least some seats. Uh, even though they finished in fourth place behind the block. So I think they're kind of thinking, whoa, phew, uh, it wasn't a total annihilation. It was just a semi-annihilation. Um, so I think that's, that's helping sing out right now. But I think overall the party's still got to be demoralized. And I don't see that turning around anytime soon. I think the NDP's going to have a hard time raising money. I think they're going to have a hard time breaking into the media. And, yeah, the NDP, is, uh, it's got a rough road ahead. So who's going to be propping up Trudeau to get the get the work done that's going to see his government last at least a couple of years? The NDP or more likely the Bloc? Yeah, well, well, the, the advantage that Trudeau has right now is he's got he's, he's got a number of dance partners he can choose. Um, you know, if, if the NDP doesn't want to play with him, then he can then he can go over to the Bloc and, and try to get support from them. Sure. Now the the problem for Trudeau in that regard is he he, he doesn't want to do anything to upset the Bloc. For a lot of reasons, I, I think he's looking at Quebec as a road to him getting a majority government next time. So he doesn't want to do anything to to help get the bloc to get any stronger because I think he, he figures they're in, uh, they took root in, in in sort of thin soil, and he can win those seats back in the next election. So he's not going to do anything to sort of give them ammunition to bash him with because he knows that'll make them stronger. So right, it'll 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 be an interesting it'll be an interesting little tactical test uh, for for Trudeau and how he can sort of navigate through those waters. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's an interesting year ahead for us all. I expect you're right, by the way. I, I think the 18 to 24-month lifespan of the current government will be uh, ex- uh, passed. I don't see them going four years necessarily, but you're right. No, we've had we've had quite our fill of elections lately <laughs> and all of the, all that goes with it. And a, a breather is a good big time out is, has been well earned by us all, don't you think, Jerry? I think that's probably the attitude of a, of, of a lot of Canadians, too. They don't like all the fighting that goes on with an election and all the sort of distractions from what they consider to be the important issues. So I think, yeah, I think, I think most people would say, yeah, we, we need a break. Well, we appreciate your time while we're taking that break, Mr. Nichols. Always a pleasure to have you on the program, Jerry. Appreciate your insight and your sense of humor. Have an excellent Christmas, my friend. Well, you too, Sterling. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Jerry Nichols in Oakville, Ontario. JerryNichols.com for lots more. We're joined by a journalist, Joanna Chu, who is uh, with Star Vancouver, who is a former correspondent in China, who covers Canada-China relations on the West Coast. Joanna, welcome. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, hi there. 
Uh, Joanna, let's talk. I want to talk a, about a lot of different things mm-hmm. between the in in terms of the relationship between Canada and China, uh, as particularly it includes the reach of the foreign ministry into domestic Canadian politics right down to the municipal level. But let's start with the big picture, please, Joanna. And it's the story, the ongoing story of the two Canadians essentially being held as hostages in Chinese prisons while we hold the uh, vice president of Huawei in a Canadian, well, under house arrest in Canada uh, at the behest of the United States. A lot of people would say Canada is being played for a sucker. Canada is simply uh, abiding by its legal obligations. That's our official position. And yet the Canadian government, for example, behind the scenes is trying to get the Americans to prove to leverage the situation a little to allow for the release of these two Canadians in custody. What, what can you tell us today about that file? Mm-hmm. So the CFO of Huawei, Meng Wanzhou, as you know, um, in Vancouver, um, she was arrested from the airport over a year ago. In mm-hmm. So, But quickly after that, the two Michaels, now that we call them, Michael Faber and Michael Kovrig, um, were arrested and now it seems very clear that they were taken um, in retaliation as they absolutely hostage taking. That's pretty clear. Um, the Chinese government has pretty much said as much. And more recently, they're threatening to levy national security charges against them. So th- those would be some of the most serious things that they could um, accuse the Canadians of. Even though it's still completely vague, they've they've they haven't come close to having a trial. Um, they've never been able to see lawyers. So I think Canadians are also getting a sense of what the legal system or lack of rule of law system looks like in China. So concern is growing. And after um, the reshuffling with Christian Freeland being moved to deputy prime minister, it's right. the new foreign minister, um, Mr. Champagne. Um, I hear from uh, sources in Ottawa that his main mandate, um, his number one priority as foreign minister is to secure the freedom for the two Michaels. So I That's... see what uh, is happening now. Uh, Canada asking the U.S. to hold off on signing a trade deal with China that's been in the works for a long time. That, that's know, right. Been at the core of a trade war, basically, between the U.S. and China. Um, to hold off on doing that, um, to, to ask China first to secure the release of the two Canadians. So it's a really interesting move there. And um, as far and as you know, the Americans have not responded yet. I was just going to ask you, have you heard anything by way of response, favorable or otherwise, to this most recent request? Because it certainly isn't the first one, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is interesting because I think I don't think Ottawa has come out and said it, but many analysts have said that Canada is in a pretty awful situation in between two superpowers, right. the U.S. and China. Um where Canada and U.S. are actually very, very close allies. Um, and we honored a, an extradition treaty to, to arrest Meng Wanzhou on the request of U.S. authorities who want her extradited to, to the States for uh, fraud charges. So we did mm-hmm. that. Um, and um, as a consequence, China lashed out at Canada. And some people think that they lashed out at us and not... For example, detaining American citizens instead is because they see Canada as a middle power, as a less powerful um, adversary. So, so Canada is in this position where we're sticking to 
um, rule of law and going according to what uh, the legal agreements of the U.S. and also our own court system mandates. So mm-hmm. perhaps Canada, by doing this, by asking the U.S., will hold off and see if you can help us. Um, that might be, I think that's showing that Ottawa is acknowledging that they feel that the U.S. kind of owes Canada to, to try to help us with this number one um, priority, which is the release of, of the two Canadians. And I mean, that's kind of like a tip of the iceberg. I'm personally a friend of Michael Kovrig, who is a former diplomat. Right. Um, and, and it's awful. Um, but also because I was a journalist in China, I know that these things happen all the time, including to Chinese citizens, as right. well as many hundreds of foreign nationals. Um, and we can talk about that later, about how harassment, intimidation of people don't just happen in China, but around the world, including Chinese officials targeting people in Canada. So, And that's that's definitely going to be part of our conversation, (laughs) Joanna. But I wanted to just draw your attention because you mentioned we do have a new foreign minister. Philippe Mm -hmm. Francois Champagne has taken over the uh, the foreign ministry, external affairs from Christian Freeland as she's moved up to the deputy PM's assignment. Uh, He seems... Uh, and it's very difficult to tell because the the, the need for uh, uh, clamping down on emotions and being very businesslike and to the point is crucial in all of these conversations. And yet you sense, Joanna, uh, a bit of an uptick in aggression on the part of Canada through the new minister sort of trying to increase the tensions or certainly the awareness of the Chinese mm-hmm. of, of the urgency uh, this represents to Canada. Yeah, so actually for most of this last year, um, um, different uh, critics have been saying that, you know, Trudeau's office hasn't seemed to be doing much um, as in articulating a new strategy to have, have to deal with Beijing as it becomes more and more aggressive against Canada. Um, mm-hmm. And just recently, I think last week or two weeks ago, actually the opposition forced the creation of a China-Canada committee to look at the relationship, and actually the Liberals opposed it. Um, so it's interesting in that way. And we haven't heard much as far as concrete policy changes to deal with Beijing. Right. Um, but we do, we have heard Trudeau spoke with CBC about how um, he doesn't see it as being realistic to increase trade at this time. So. And you mentioned, you mentioned uh, trying to attach the release of the Canadian hostages mm-hmm. to the negotiation process between America and China on this deal. This trade deal is going to be the pivot point for Donald Trump's election campaign next year. He wants this deal in a very big way, and he wants to win in getting the deal. Uh, if Canada is, if this uh, request by the government of Canada for assistance mm-hmm. on this file with the to Michaels uh, to for seeking their release. If that is seen by the Trump administration as an impediment, then it won't it won't happen. So I guess what Canada's task here, Joanna, is to convince the Americans that it is in everyone's best interest mm-hmm. to include that as part of the deal. Yeah, um, and we can't tell. Um, it's all behind closed doors whether sure. Canada's argument is compelling to the U.S. or not. Um, but to give some context, I was in D.C. pretty soon after the Michaels were arrested, and it seemed like only 
certain people who were already interested in China were quite um, knowledgeable about the case. I think the average Canadian, oh, sorry, the average American doesn't know that China has um, taken Canadian sausage. It's not one of the big issues that they have. I don't have think they do either. Mm-hmm. So I don't think Trump would have that much political pressure domestically to to help Canada out in this sense. But um, it's hard to say because his administration did lead. They're leading um, kind of a clampdown on Huawei. Um, they put Huawei on its list of restricted entities. So actually, um, even um, Google um, isn't able to partner with Huawei as an American company. So, I mean, Huawei is a big issue for them, but it's unclear whether they care that much or will prioritize helping with the collateral um, damage of Canadians being kidnapped basically so right joanna i needed i need to take a quick break here and i'd like you to stick around please but just just before Mm -hmm. we take the break what do you understand the situation with huawei here in canada to be for example we are one of the five eyes international Mm -hmm. strategic partnerships two or three of our our current partners have already said no to huawei's 5g Mm -hmm. incursions into their countries canada is still on the fence Mm -hmm. as is the uk Uh, at least that's what i understand us to be. Do you know anything different? Um, Canada's intelligence community say it's still conducting a review into Huawei's potential participation in our 5G network. Um, some companies, Canadian companies, are have been pushing the government to make a decision already because it would have such a big impact on their future development. But oh, sure. as far as I can tell, I think there's no rush. The government doesn't feel a rush to make a decision whether to ban or to partially ban because it seems like they might want to avoid the backlash from Beijing while the two Michael cases, freedom, safety is still up in the air. So they they said, actually, um, they kind of indicated that maybe we'll hear something from the end of this year. But, you know, nothing has materialized. It's almost Christmas. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't think it's coming. Um, and I we think that there's some disagreement within different government agencies about how much of it actually... Uh, concrete threat, security danger, Huawei poses. So it seems like there's some kind of uh, internal arguing and also worry about jeopardizing the Michael's safety going exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. But meanwhile, I think it has settled in among people in senior levels of government and pundits that the Hmong case is not going to go away likely for a long time. Lawyers say it could take up to 10 years. She has the best lawyers in Canada at her disposal. She's bringing on um, defenses. So if if part of the delay in making the decision was hoping that she would get released and everything would um, would blow over or she would get extradited and things would advance, um, it's looking more and more like her case. She'll be in Vancouver for a while unless something very unusual happens. Our guest this half hour is Joanna Chu. Ms. Chu is a senior journalist for the Star of Vancouver, a former correspondent in China, and we've been talking about, well, the, the status of the Canada-China relationship, and we've been talking at the federal level, particularly, of course, against the two Michaels, Mr. Spaver and Mr. Kovrig, who, Kovrig, rather, who have been in, in prison in China now as hostages for about a year, as we have continued to maintain house arrest uh, for Meng Wanzhou, the uh, 
uh, uh, vice chair of Huawei here in Canada. So now uh, let's talk a little bit, Joanna, about the 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 reach of Beijing into domestic Canadian politics. We know that they do their very best to influence governments uh, around the world. They're trying to buy their way into, well, they're doing a pretty good job buying Africa these days. Um, and, and of course, Huawei has $56 million tied up in investments, investments in quotes, in Canadian universities. But now we have situations like uh, British Columbia, for example, the closest Canadian jurisdiction to China, and their un- Union of BC Municipalities. These are all the mayors and city councillors from the, the from across the province that, as we do in every Canadian province, get together for a bit of a bun toss every year and elect a new uh, a, a president and so on and establish a few basic policy positions. Uh, at this particular BC gathering, Joanna, the government of China has held a many thousand dollar official reception for all of those delegates, all those aldermen and councillors and mayors from all over small and large town BC as they gather at their convention. This year, those delegates voted to ban the government of China. We don't want any more of your involvement with us at the municipal level, especially formerly being wined and dined in a convention uh, venue. So is this the tip of the iceberg, Joanna? Are you aware of this sort of thing going on in other Canadian jurisdictions and other Canadian politicians responding as the BC people have done? Yeah, I think that example got a lot of attention, but in the grand scheme of things of what Chinese government is doing in Canada, it's one of the more benign examples. Right. Um, I did, and this I did, is what we're going for today. Yeah. I did speak with the BC mayor who was very instrumental, I think, in raising attention about this controversial uh, convention, this reception that the embassy sponsored. Mm-hmm. And he lodged a formal complaint to the uh, Union of BC Municipalities. He's the mayor of Port Coquitlam, which is a fairly small city, around 60,000 people. Um, but partly, I had an interview with him in the Star, where he said that part of the reason why he cares so much about this issue, um, he's speaking up as a mayor of a small city, is that even in his small city of 60,000 people, uh, people have, residents have told him that Chinese government officials have approached them in person. They went to their homes and over the phone and other digital means to harass and intimidate them. Really? For, yeah, for issues like, say, if they took part in uh, an event that was political, if they showed any support on social media for the Hong Kong democracy movement. Um, so are, are these well are these people, Joanna? Are these people being contacted and harassed by Chinese mm-hmm. officials? Are these uh, who live in in uh, the mayor's jurisdiction? Mm-hmm. Are they Chinese nationals themselves or Canadians? He definitely. The mayor said that I think most of them are Canadians. Okay. Um, in my own reporting, um, I've spoken to people who were Chinese nationals who were students um, at top universities in Canada who tell me they were contacted by the embassies here, intimidated. They were contacted by Chinese police who say, oh, I went to your parents' home back in China um, to tell them that you opened a Twitter account and you shared something um, about the Chinese president that was very flattering. Mm. It comes down to this minutiae of, um, I think a lot of what Canadians don't understand is that in China, there's tens of thousands of people who are employed to try to do this kind of work to use um, kind of soft power, which is things like 
wining and dining uh, officials around the world to get them right. kind of friendly um, with China and also people who do more covert stuff like target people who are really like just ordinary people with very little of a public platform. Um, and they do, you're right in that they do kind of hone in on people of Chinese descent. So I'm Chinese Canadian. I have no connection to China uh, legally, I have no such thing as a passport or anything, but mm-hmm. um, this kind of effort kind of focuses on people like me, um, even if we're completely foreigners, because I think it's linked to what China's worried about domestically. They're worried about, um, they're promoting this idea that Chinese are, it's kind of like a ethnic, cultural, like family, this big body of people around the world. Mm-hmm. So the flip side of that is that people um, who, like me are not under the thumb of the Chinese communist system. We're not controlled by the internet and the legal system there and can say whatever we want. Right. And I think partly they worry about the influence that this will make um, on people, on Chinese citizens. For example, they're really, really anxious about what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, millions on the streets protests have been happening for over half a year um calling for democracy um calling to have meaningful independence legally and politically from the chinese communist party leadership so they're very anxious about clamping down on this and my colleague jeremy nello and i we did a explainer um in the star uh, a few days ago about the united front work department and that's an official department in the chinese uh government which which does this kind of work. They collaborate with the propaganda department, with the secret police, to try to basically promote what Beijing wants people to believe and to try to stifle, erase. um, And if they're doing this to to individual citizens like you, Joanna, and I'm interrupting you only because I'm out of time and and trying to make the point that if they're doing this to individuals like you and and this very sophisticated apparatus they're conducting it with, imagine what what pressure they can bring to bear on local politicians at every level. Thank you for this. A pleasure to have you on the program. Disturbing information, but nonetheless important that we hear. Thank you, Joanna. Thank you. There's Joanna Chu from the Star Vancouver, former correspondent in China. Uh, We have been talking about the issues that matter on the radio across Canada for many, many years. It's always a real joy to welcome Diane Francis from the National Post and the Financial Post, editor-at-large to the airwaves of the Roy Green Show. Hello, Diane. Hi, Sterling. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Let's start with it, because you wrote a couple of great columns this week. One about John Baird that completely got me going sideways, and another <laughs> one another one about LNG that I really want to talk about, but we yes. can't. We can't have the, the, the editor of the Financial Post join us on the radio a few days after the Minister of Finance gives us the official uh, update, the economic update, and not expect some commentary. Mr. Morneau says, and I, I sort of boiled it down a few moments ago to, okay, we're really, really, really in debt, but we're okay. That's what I took away. What was yours? Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, th- this is the same government who, just before the election, the jobs figures, they completely concocted and made them look rosier than they were and said that we had, you know, one of the best employment rates in the G7. And then, of course, right after the election, we got the real numbers. 
uh, where they had plummeted, and we have, you know, terrible unemployment rate of 7.6% or something much worse than any of the G7. You know, they, they play games. Um, I, I don't know whether it's intentional or they're just ignorant and don't, don't really know uh, the figures and how to present them fairly, but uh, this, is not a, this is not a regime we can trust. We cannot trust this regime. And they have, have really led us uh, down the garden path in terms of energy policy, environmental policy, and, of course, fiscal policy. Uh, this was the prime minister who I think in 2015 promised balanced budgets by now. And mm-hmm. you know, now we're headed toward record deficits. I, the, the only thing that surprised me, we've been doing postmortems on this, on the, the election, and of course, Mr. Shear's departure and all the rest of it has brought a, a lot of the conversation back again. Uh, and, and the only thing that, that surprised me during the election campaign itself, Diane, was the lack of attack on the uh, ability of the liberals to manage the public purse. They're doing a dreadful job, uh, and nobody seemed to want to point it out. Yeah, the the uh, they were able to hoodwink uh, the public and the opposition by never talking about the economy. Part of the part of the uh, disinformation, though, was this jobs report, uh, which used a a figure, a definition of job that I've never seen any government in the world use to inflate the number of jobs. And that was they said, well, jobs have gone up. And this is the number of self-employed that have gone up. Well, self-employed is not a job, and it's not a job category. Usually it's the default position of someone who's out, who's out of work and has to try and drive an Uber, Uber car to make ends meet. This is not a real job statistic, and yet they trotted that. I mean, it, it, it's fraudulent. And so they did that, and then that sort of, you know, and then Sheer just, I just don't think he had the mojo. I think, I think really what I want, in the next conservative leader is someone who actually believes in economic wealth creation, who believes in entrepreneurship, in free enterprise, in smaller government, in, in all of these, th- and, and in just doing what's the best thing for Canadians and not what the United Nations wonks dictate. And this mm-hmm. is what we need. We need someone with the passion and the strength to just say, wait a minute, this is crazy. These are the values of Canadians. Country was built with free enterprise. It wasn't built with uh, socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, your choice, John Baird, in a couple of minutes. But back to the minister, the finance minister's announcement. The conservative finance critic, uh, possible leadership contender himself, Pierre Polyev from Ottawa, uh, took to the mic after Morneau's uh, and pointed to the abject financial mismanagement, uh, and his conclusion was that if they're not more astute, Diane, this could very well end up as a made-in-Canada recession. The minister subsequently has warned Polyevre and all any and all other uh, opposition members to stop even using the word recession. Yeah, well, I wrote a column two weeks ago calling it the Trudeau recession. It's about to come. By the way, Polyev is a terrific potential leader. Uh, I don't think he's put his hat in the ring. I, I, I back Baird only for the reason that he was forceful and I liked his tough style. Mm-hmm. His unapologetic free enterprise positions. Now, he's ha- he has some issues, and, you know, that, that's neither here nor there. I threw his name out, and I also like Rona Ambrose. I think mm-hmm. she's also 
uh, a potentially very good leader, but there are others, I'm sure, out there. But those are the first two that I thought of. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to be easy to pick a good leader, but it's got to be someone who is who can stand toe-to-toe with these guys and call them out for the socialist whimpering trust fund kids that they are who don't understand how the world works. Yeah. That's what uh, we need. Well, and, and you know, it, 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 in the course of the discussion that came out yesterday in terms of understanding how the real world works, uh, Mr. Shear is a professional politician. He's no trust fund baby, Diane, but he has, uh, for his entire working life, been in politics. And uh, uh, again, uh, it's an isolated, bubbly kind of world that they live in, and it's not necessarily terribly reflective of the lives that the rest of us lead. I agree. I agree. Uh, he had some other problems. For a guy that, that was a denizen of the public, of public life and the political world, he had no idea about optics. I mean, he, first of all, was a social conservative. Mm-hmm. And he kept that pretty quiet, and then he couldn't defend it. And frankly, I don't think you have a social conservative as a na- leader of a national political party because the majority of the people in this country are not social conservatives. True. And by the way, that is something you can't compromise on. That's not, well, I'll be a little social conservative. Yeah, or, right. you know, I mean, not marching and then not marching in gay, gay pride parades. What kind of intolerance is that? And then hiding the fact that he was an American citizen? I mean... I don't think there's any shame in that. I'm a dual citizen. But I know. Why would you not have gotten rid of that citizenship if you, if you, you know, wanted to become a leader in Canada? I mean, you jettison that, or you jettison it. He he didn't have to take it. He he he. You know, he he inherited it from his father. He wasn't born there or anything. Right. So yeah. he could have let it fall away at the age of 18, but he didn't. Then at 19, he could have gotten rid of it. And I thought to myself. Okay, we're going to elect a guy potentially to be prime minister of Canada who said during the election, "Oh, I'm in the business I'm in in the middle of renouncing it." So, can you imagine him going down and meeting Trump in the White House for the first time? Mhm. In the middle of renouncing his American Have a citizenship. Citizen. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't know what he was doing. It was mm-hmm. really quite pathetic. And then of course this whole business of the school payments and all of that. Um, you know, I like I like politicians who who put their kids in public school like the rest of us do, who mm-hmm. believe in the same values the rest of us do, who are not wacko extremists in any, in any way, shape, or form, but actually ascribe to what most Canadians ascribe to. Uh, we're going to talk about a column you wrote uh, quite recently about LNG and the position that you think Canada should enjoy in the world versus what the government of Canada seems to want our position to be in the world. And there's a rather large gap between the two. But first, uh, we've got some callers on the line, I think relevant to what we've already talked about, and I'd like to include them going forward as we start in Alberta. Uh, Richard, hello to you. Good afternoon, sir. Merry Christmas. Thanks for taking the call. Where are you calling from, Richard? Calling Lake Alberta. Okay, great. North, Good to hear North from you. What, two hours. Yeah. What's up? Well, I'm Indigenous, and uh, there's 1.4 million of us in Canada, and I believe firmly, and this is kind of um, perplexes me why it's not in the in the media. And oh, I, uh, Richard's line just dropped off. Diane, I have no idea what happened there. I have no control over that. Uh, no, but call back. 
Yeah, I hope he does because yeah. I think he was. I would think he was going to make a point about the impact of the indigenous vote on the outcome of any election. Uh, he had called earlier and was going to try and and so I don't know what happened to the call. Maybe it was a cell. Maybe he went under a bridge. That happens. Richard, call us back, please. We'll go to Mike in Drumheller next. Mike, you with us? I sure am. Thanks for okay. taking my call. No problem. Go ahead, please. Merry Christmas to you and all the listeners out there. And well, thanks, uh, Mike. Yeah, I'm listening to uh, your show today, and, uh, you know, I... He's breaking uh, up. I can't hear. Okay. I've always thought of uh, that John Baird is the proper person to lead the party, the next leader. Uh, There's many reasons uh, I like John John Baird. I liked him when he was a cabinet minister. I think he was foreign affairs minister in the Harper government. Yes. I thought he was very statesmanlike. He, He led the party, led it with dignity. He's, uh, you know, he's a, a free-spirited guy, and uh, I think he's the guy that's going to take the, the ropes and be the next prime minister. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking at all the leaders in there. We've got some here from Western Canada, Rona Ambrose, and uh, I know we've got Jean Charest from Quebec. Right. And I think, you know, you know, nothing against the people of Quebec or anything, but I think the, <laughs> I think we've really had enough leaders from the province of Quebec. I think we need different visions of uh, Canada from all regions of Canada besides someone from Quebec. And, you know, I like John Baird. I think he's the guy that's going to take us to uh, the prime minister's office. Interesting stuff. Mike, thanks very much for your call. Good to hear from you. There you go, Diane, another supporter of Mr. Baird. Yeah, I I like him a lot. Uh, You know, there's, uh, like like all of them, Charest, uh, not Rona, but like Charest, there's a whiff of scandal behind them. We'll see. We'll have to see how that is all dealt with, if in fact it's real. And that's that's always a problem. That has to be, you know, they live in a goldfish bowl now. They've mm-hmm. got to be like Caesar's wife. They've got to be perfect. Uh, I like Rona a lot. Uh, the only thing is it would be kind of nice to have somebody from Ontario who would uh, help get that vote there. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Tories don't have to worry about Alberta. They don't have to worry about the Prairie vote. Uh, they've got that bagged, I would think. No uh, kidding. But, you know, we, we need somebody who's really going to appeal. Now, on the other hand, uh, you know, there were quite a few seats elected in Ontario, not enough. Uh, Doug Ford did very well in the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's had some missteps, and that's maybe why he decided to stay on the sidelines and not be in anybody's faces. But, you know, what you need is, I think, uh, you need to appeal to the suburbanite, the suburbanite uh, people, and you need to appeal to women. And that is not what Shear did. He did not do either of that. The social conservative thing scared women and uh, and probably scared young people. And, uh, you know, and, and of course he had no profile. Mm-hmm. He, he really had no profile. So uh, that's a matter of, of building, and you have to do that. Uh, I think they should take their time. Uh, and, you know, let's hope, let's hope we get somebody. Because, you know, it's, it's tragic that, you know, Trudeau was so easily defeated by the right leader uh, that, in, in actual fact, if you consider that Scheer didn't, didn't do very well, but even so, he got more popular vote than Trudeau. Yeah. Uh, Richard's back with us. Uh, go ahead, Richard. Uh, thank you for calling us back. I don't know what happened, but you dropped off, and you were just about to tell Diane and me that you are an Indigenous person. You got that part out, and you were saying that there were over a million people who voted, Indigenous people who voted in the last election, well, and there, uh, you, were, you were perplexed by something. I wouldn't say a million people. There's 1.4 million of us in Canada, and even if about 17% of us showed up at the polls, that's about a quarter of a million votes. Okay. 
Um, and now I understand that Mr. Shear had made a statement during the campaign. I don't have any uh, clips on it, but uh, I don't need the Indigenous vote. Plus, uh, I guess we're um, he played the scapegoating card and said that we're holding Canada hostage. That cost him big time. Uh, as well as with um, Mr. Trudeau, I mean, he threw Jody Wilson-Raybould under the bus, so that mm-hmm. cost him. Jagmeet Singh gets it, because at the end of post-election results, and when they give their speeches, he took at least 30 seconds of his very valuable um, speech to address Indigenous issues. I know who I'm voting for next election. A lot of the leaders, it's like we're still invisible. They don't understand or get that we can constitute a swing vote anytime. Uh, you know, we're here. We're not going nowhere. Mainstream is here. Let's, let's, right. It's about reconciliation, you know, and Jagmeet gets it. He sees us. He, he, we're not invisible to him. And I believe firmly, again, that Trudeau and Shear it cost them big time. All right, Richard, thank you very much for calling us back. I appreciate that and and making the extra effort, Diane, to make a valid point. Now, I had the numbers wrong. Uh, they they I said there were a million over a million voters. Uh, no, that's no, not true. No, there's, but there's uh, fewer the, than a million that's right. Uh, you know treaty treaty uh, indigenous folks in in Canada, those are the right. official figures. There may be more. Um, but he he makes a very good point. they're They're an important group. Uh, I think also that they have been bandied about by leaders who who pretend that they're speaking on their behalf, but there's quite a few Indigenous people in many groups uh, that absolutely 100% back a lot of the resource developments sure. that the Liberals say they don't want, and I think that's wrong. And And another important fact is that the biggest employer of indigenous people in the country are the mine is the mining and the oil and gas industry and because they operate in in those areas where where the reserves are in in the in the hinterland of the country mm-hmm. and so you know i just don't think we have first of all i'm sure they don't speak with one voice but if you look at some of the upcoming decisions for instance the big open pit oil sands mine uh, that's proposed by Tech in northern Alberta. Well, that's going to be a big fight with the Liberals and the environmentalists, sure. when in actual fact all 40 of the Aboriginal groups in the Métis in that region want it. And so, you know, this is these are the kinds of things that get lost in the shuffle. So I agree. I think they're they're quite they're quite invisible. Diane, I've literally got about a minute and a half, which is going to do poor service, but give us the elevator version of the column you wrote about LNG, our potential to be a world power and a government who doesn't seem to want to be. Well, um, what I I want to say is that this is a government that pretends it cares about climate change, whatever that is, and that's very, very suspect, by the way. Uh, But, you know, they they crack down on pipelines, on, on... development of natural gas and oil and gas and all of that stuff in the interests of the climate change religion, I call it. And in actual fact, LNG is the only thing that is going to help the world's emissions go down because LNG, which is liquefied natural gas, which Canada had 20 projected proposals for projects, five, five, you know, just four years ago, and, and the liberals killed all of them. They had we had 20 on the on the drawing boards, and they refused to give pipelines and permission for them to go ahead. So they walked away. 
those LNG plants, every one of them, those LNG, the LNG replaces coal. Yeah. So every time you do not export a molecule of LNG, a molecule of coal, which is filthy, three or four times filthier than LNG, is, is generated, is burned. And so it is absolutely suicidal and crazy for them to have discouraged and destroyed a burgeoning export industry in LNG. Now we have two small plants, one proposal. In that period of time, the Americans are nearly at 30 plants from being completely behind us, and they are a year away from being the world's leader in LNG production, and they are helping reduce the world's emissions by doing that. Uh, it, it's a sad note to leave you on because it's, it's, you make some wonderful points. I'm just fresh out of time, but only enough to, to thank you for yours and to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. Thanks thank again, you. Diane. Same to your audience. Thank you. The uh, number three sports story, uh, Canadian Press news stories of the year. Well, let's do it in order. Number one, climate change. Number two, the SNC-Lavalin saga. And number three, the Toronto Raptors winning the NBA title. So that's pretty big stuff in the, in our country that had a lot of news items going on. Here to talk about the impact of the Raptors and that title win is former Canadian Olympic basketball player and member of the BC Sports Hall of Fame, Howard Kelsey, is on the line. Howard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sterling. Happy to be here. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Well, the same to you. Now, I'm told you're somewhere in Mexico. Is this just a nasty rumor or what? No, it's a true rumor. I'm about 50 meters from the Pacific Ocean in Mazatlan, and I'm honored to have the call and uh, call in. The beauty of technology now. Well, it's great to have you with us, and you're a, such a basketball guy um, in the Hall of Fame, uh, the BC Sports Hall of Fame, former Olympic player on the Canadian team. It's uh, It's been a big part of your life for a very, very long time. What did you, may, where were you when the Raptors won the title this summer? Um, in games, well, I was by the TV every game, but specifically in game seven when, or game six when they won, I was, I was at home watching it and uh, doing multiple interviews, so... Uh, as you know, the country went crazy, and uh, I must have fielded at least 10, 10 interviews that day. So the level of interest in basketball has suddenly gone astronomical in our country. Well, you know, and uh, the celebration with the uh, the trophy procession and parade through the streets of Toronto that took many, many more hours than expected, uh, it was quite a spectacle, wasn't it? Uh, this is no disrespect to hockey, but I don't think hockey would have got two million people. So, yes, I don't think any parade in the history of the NBA, and to the best of my knowledge, in any major sports franchise in North America has garnered two million as Toronto did. Well, you know, if it's any consolation to you, the last time that Toronto uh, had a hockey championship parade uh, was 1967. <laughs> I was there. I was in high school at the time, and there were not two million of us at that parade. It was an enthusiastic gang, but it was, there were nowhere close to two million people. And also the beauty of it is it didn't just touch Toronto. It touched uh, almost every city across our country. So that's another phenomena that we're watching happen that hasn't been there in our culture before. 
Well, that's true, and it and it's it's uh, it's taking off into other sectors as well. Because, as you know, by way of preparing for this conversation, uh, I, I started looking at other Canadian names, and it would be impossible. And I'm going to open up the phone lines here and ask our listeners across the country, Howard, to join in with what they think is the number one sports story of 2019. Obviously, Raptors fans are going to be all over this one and agreeing with the Canadian press, uh, who put it uh, number three of overall for the year. That includes news as well as sports. But, you know, uh, we've also seen some real uh, advances in other sports with young, rising Canadian stars. How can you possibly talk about 2019 in sports in Canada and not include Bianca Andreescu, for example, Howard? Absolutely. I mean, we're breaking through in many areas that people would have said were not for Canadians 10 years ago. Right. And, well, you've got Bianca Andreescu on the women's side and uh, Dennis Shapovalov, a rising young star on the men's side. Suddenly, world tennis includes Canadian names in their top ten lists for the first time in a long time. No disrespect intended to other stars from previous years, but it's we're coming on in, in a way that we, I don't think, have been seen before. Well, I thought Shapovalov took Rafael Nadal as far as he could. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was extremely impressed as well. So yes, we're 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 knocking on uh, on world prominence now, whereas before we would be happy just to be close in a quarter or a semi. Exactly. Now, Howard, I did open up the phone lines. It's 1-800-263-2428 and did invite our listeners across the country to jump in uh, as we uh, take a few moments and relax a little bit on a Sunday afternoon. Football games on in the background and all that stuff. And just talk about the big sports stories of 2019. Andrew in Toronto has, uh, has some thoughts on this. So let's include some of our listeners going forward. Andrew, welcome. Hi, how you doing? All right, thanks. So what did you think about the number one sports story of the year? Well, it's clearly the Raptors. It kind of captivated everybody across the country. You, you saw viewing parties in, you know, places that you'd never thought they'd probably even play basketball sometime. Right. Uh, so, like, I think that's, that's the big story of the year. For me, the, the one that on the news story that didn't get on the, the list was the, the manhunt for the two boys from uh, two young men from D.C., that's that interesting. Was, that was there, on there for sure. It was, and it was it was top five. Uh, it the 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 manhunt for the young men from Port Alberni, British Columbia, who ended up uh, up in the Muskeg of northern Manitoba, killing themselves after killing other people. That was quite a dramatic story, Andrew. And it was in the top five, uh, particularly strongly supported from Western Canada, just for the curiosity of it all. But uh, number th- so number one was climate change. Number two, SNC Lavalin, and number three overall was the Raptors title. Andrew, thanks for your call. Uh, to you, Howard, you're a former Canadian o- o- Olympic basketball player, and your job, part of your job as a team member back in the 80s was to take the game of basketball to the people of Canada as a member of their Olympic team. You put on exhibition games and clinics and did all sorts of things, but the level compare the level of response in the mid-80s to what we've just seen in 2019. Well, the, it's, there are two different things, and I have to give a lot of credit here to Glenn Grunwald, uh, who is the president and CEO of Basketball Canada currently. Yes. You're going you're to see this June 23rd to 28th in Victoria at the Save on Foods Arena, Team Canada with 8 to 10 NBA players. 
multiple names have committed. We can go to those names if the viewers want to. But Glenn Grunwald and Clint Hamilton, the athletic director at the University of Victoria, are bringing the pre-Olympic men's qualifier where you will have the MVP of the NBA, Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks, playing for Greece. Yao Ming is the president of China basketball. And Team Canada, more importantly, with Nick Nurse, the head coach of, of the Toronto Raptors. Of the Raptors, yeah. Side, MLSE to Team Canada. And you're going to have a much higher profile than we used to enjoy. Sure, yeah. we did qualify in each of the years that we uh, attempted to do. 80, 84, 88. And then the last one that Canada's ever qualified was seventh place in the Sydney Olympics under Steve Nash and Jay Triano. Ah, right. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, Andrew mentioned uh, when he talked to and, and supported the the Raptors uh, winning the NBA championship as a huge uh, news story and the top sports story certainly in Canada this year. And he made the point, and I thought it was a good one. Andrew mentioned that the Raptors have taken the game of basketball to places and corners in Canada where literally it's never been played before. Understandable, because the reach of the NBA. The NBA is generally regarded as the best-run professional league in the world. Some would argue that FIFA and the World Cup are, but that's not a league. The NBA as a league is generally regarded as one of the best, if not the best-marketed professional league. So with all that marketing and all that reach with television, as you experienced in Toronto and we experienced across the country, even in the U.S., they were surprised at the reaction of Canadians as the Raptors moved into the semis and then the final. And I don't think that the Raptors this year are out of either again, even though they lost to Y. Leonard. They have the ability, and the Eastern Conference, they are capable of winning that again, and they are capable of making it to the finals again. And, of course, the pressure uh, this year versus last year is pretty different, though, Howard. Last year, they were an up-and-comer, and maybe, maybe, maybe this might maybe be it. Well, this year, they're the champs, and everybody's going after them. They got a target on their back, but hey, that comes with being a champion. Of course. That's part of what they've been working for. But to to their credit, they are no longer uh, also Rams getting bounced out in the playoffs. That used to haunt them. Mm -hmm. They're a team that now has taken the championship, and somebody has to go in and take it away from them. So I can see very good things. And also, again, Nick Nurse being brought by Glenn Grunwald and the Canada basketball team. It's no coincidence. It's a very smart move. Sure. Now you've tied MLSE, Toronto Raptors, and Team Canada, and that media following will follow us in Victoria next summer. Hopefully that will be the story of 2020, that Canada basketball can win a medal in the men's Olympics in Tokyo. That would be something. That absolutely would be. Howard, please stand by. Our guest is uh, Canadian Olympic basketball player Howard Kelsey, a member of the BC Sports Hall of Fame, on vacation. He's already ahead of the rest of us. He's already in Mazatlan, Mexico, for crying out loud. Lots more still ahead with Howard Kelsey and a little sports on a Sunday afternoon. Howard Kelsey from the Canadian Basketball Program joining us from his already vacation in Mexico. Thank you very much. And Howard, just before we go back to the lines, you mentioned the component of the Team Canada, the men's team that's going to go to the Olympics and the pre-qualifying round that's coming up in Victoria uh, early in the new year. You mentioned several NBA players on Team Canada. Tell us who some of those players are, please. The ones that have publicly declared are Jamal Murray, Kelly Olenek, Dwight Powell, uh, Kim Birch, 
R.J. Barrett. Uh, I may be missing a few. Tristan Thompson, Corey Joseph. Uh, those are the, the ones that I have personal knowledge of. And I think the large majority, we'll have 12 on our roster. That's on any Olympic team. That's the maximum you could have. Right. I would say eight to eight of those 12 players would probably be NBA players. And just because they're not in the NBA, I'll give you an example of Melvin Edgem, the two scrubs, and Kyle Wilcher. Those are NBA caliber players. They just don't happen to play in the NBA. But short answer, we'll have a large contingency. Uh, some of our uh, marquee name players in the NBA will play for Team Canada this summer in Victoria at the Save on Foods Arena, June 23rd to 28th. And again, we have to give a lot of credit to MLSE, which would be Masai Ujiri, Larry Tannenbaum, for letting uh, uh, Nick Nurse become the coach. That was orchestrated by Glenn Grunwald. we got to give credit to the city of Victoria, principally Clint Hamilton, the mayor of the city of Lankford, Stu Young, Greater Victoria Sports Tourism Commission, Chair Robert Bettauer, and his executive director, Keith Wells. Our team at BD Global Sports, uh, Ron Foxtrot played a hand in this. So did Ken and Kathy Shields. Those are the main people that have got the job done through their legacy in basketball. Right. No doubt that Toronto is the center of the universe for basketball, but now on the West Coast, Victoria will be the center of the universe this summer after the NBA Finals. Interesting stuff. June 23rd to 28th, and of course that'll be all uh, televised coverage too as well, won't it? It will be all over the world on FIBA.com, but also we'll have, I'm sure plenty of coverage on our networks because with these NBA players, half of them bring their own media components. So oh, for the sure. of interest will be very high. It will no be question high. about it. It's going to be a lot of fun, too. That's got, let's include some more of our listeners going forward here, Howard. We're in Vancouver next with Fred on the line. Good afternoon, Fred. Well, it's good to hear your voice there, Sterling. Uh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're awesome. I've been listening to you, I think, forever, it seems. Probably <laughs> since the early 70s. Well, I'm still here. What's on your mind today? Okay, I, I would, I'd like to uh, nominate uh, well Craig Berube for uh, what a ter- he's a Canadian, spent a lot of time in B.C. He did a, a lot. Without him, the St. Louis Blues would have never have won the Stanley Cup. Because uh-huh. he, he is so awesome as a human being. We had him in Philly as a player and as a coach, and everybody just loves the guy. I wish, I wish he could run for prime minister. I'd vote for him any day. <laughs> Fred, thanks very much for your call and Merry Christmas to you. Appreciate your joining us this afternoon as we'll pop back into Ontario and check in at Elaine's place next. Elaine, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I would say definitely the Raptors because okay. for the first time, right across Canada, every city and town owned Jurassic Park. We oh, were that's all true. outdoors in the horrible weather. That's right. <laughs> jumping around, celebrating together. Like, it really brought the country together. Yeah, that's true, and that's a great point to make, and thank you for doing so, Elaine. It's great to hear from you today. Okay, have a Merry Christmas. Well, same to you. Howard, that's true. Um, We we had hundreds, hundreds of little Jurassic Parks all over Canada this year. That was fun. Several had 100,000 outside of uh, uh, Metro Toronto. So, yes, it is very fun. It's also created a cultural phenomenon. It's true. No question about it. Uh, next caller is from Toronto. Terry, hello to you. Uh, hi, Sterling. My yes, sir. sports story is uh, has a, a negative spin to it, but uh, what's bothered me this year has been 
the ongoing collapse of the Toronto Argonauts. Ah, yeah. Now, what's what's 90%, going on with the CFL? 90% of your affiliates right now will be saying, oh, poor Toronto. No, no. <laughs> but, no, uh, no. You see, it, it, many of our affiliates have stations, have, have teams, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, all, all those teams, and, and Regina, uh, uh, too. Is, they Their teams are huge. They're popular. They're a big, big deal. The CFL needs Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, and the, the game in all three of those cities is just about dead, and that's really wrong. So what's yeah. going on? What, what do you make of that, Terry? Why? That is actually that. That was actually my second point, and, and I, I see part of the problem uh, being the the uh, uh, lack of an even distribution between the east and the west, and the date for a, a maritime team where they seem to be just throwing a dart at a dartboard and guessing when we're going to have one. But I think if we can if we can get the east and the west. Five teams each, even mm-hmm. matched. I think it's going to make the game. It's going to bring more meaning to the game. Might even save it. Yeah, I appreciate your call, Terry. Thanks very much for joining us, Howard. You're a sports guy and have been for decades, and you're a BC guy, and you've watched the Lions. I want to say fall out of favor. They've just, they've just passed. The, the city has passed them by. Same deal in Toronto. Uh, and it's not because they're not. Well, it depends on the quality of the product on the field, obviously, but. Something's wrong in the three markets the CFL needs the most to survive. It's where the least interest is. Uh, are you asking me for some critique on, on that? Yeah, but, well, what, you're a sports guy. You've had a lot of exposure to professional sports organizations over your lifetime. What happened to the big market CFL teams? Where where did they lose their, their people? Well, again, I'm not an expert on, on football, but I can, in terms of sports, management acumen one of the areas that i think and i would agree with the caller you can't have every team except one in each conference making the playoffs because it dilutes the value of the playoffs you have sure. to have two evenly evenly um aligned conferences so i would be in favor of halifax having a team and also you can't play the same team so many times in the year because it's quite redundant, no disrespect. So mm-hmm. it's also when you have a, a, a NBA, Major League Baseball, NHL, those are run in a higher level of professionalism, not to be disrespect to the CFL. So they're going to have to step up their game in terms of the delivery because Canadians now, we're spoiled. We're used to the best in the world. And so if it doesn't deliver on the points that the fans are expected, there's a limited amount of uh, funds floating around in those major cities, and people are quite picky, so they won't go. And also, you're in a large arena. In our case, in Vancouver, it's 63,000. Yeah. Not easy to fill an arena that big. But short answer, I think the CFL will wake up. I have a lot of confidence in MLSE uh, with Toronto, so I, I know they'll make changes. And just like every sport, it's a pendulum. When everything goes down to the bottom, it can only go up. So Toronto, don't despair. You'll be back. And I'm, I have every confidence in the BC Lions. I've been a BC Lions fan all my life. I think we'll be fine. All right. Howard Kelsey, Merry Christmas to you. Thanks for taking time out of a busy Sunday afternoon on the beach in Mazatlan. (laughs) Take care. There we go. Thank There's Howard, Howard Kelsey from the VC Sports Hall of Fame and, of course, the Canadian Basketball Program. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 